3: When the public was being particularly um, unruly, she would write a letter to the Times and she would say, you know, the Queen is feeling really, uh, has such important work to do and is so unhappy that would her people please be quiet and stop complaining? I mean, <laughs> uh, and you can't imagine our present Queen doing that.
4: That was Jane Ridley talking about Queen Victoria in a lecture from our Victorians' Day earlier this year. A few months ago, we held a day event at Bristol's Emshed Museum, themed around the Victorians. Among the speakers was Professor Jane Ridley of the University of Buckingham, whose topic was Queen Victoria herself, the subject of her recent biography in the Penguin Monarch series. Here's what she had to say.
3: I wanted to talk about something that um, I don't think there's actually any real answer to, Uh, but I just want to suggest some ways of thinking about Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is somebody we sort of all think we're familiar with, but in fact there are so many um, different views of her and some of them uh, are um, really very wide of the mark. You, You may or may not be familiar with this image... I don't know whether anybody actually um, saw this programme on the television. This is the programme, Victoria, Daisy Goodwin's programme, which I'm pleased to say was on ITV and not on BBC. (laughs) 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 Um, Because it is a a film that was really composed of sort of invention. Even um, Gemma Coleman, who I'm sure is a wonderful actor, is a, a rather inappropriate person to play Queen Victoria in that she is far too pretty. And far too thin. And also, actually, doesn't ride terribly well. Anybody who rides would... <laughs> So that is one image of Queen Victoria. And I must say, when I saw that programme, I, I did get rather annoyed just because of the historical inaccuracies. I mean, for example, the idea that Queen Victoria should have proposed to her prime minister, Melbourne, was just outrageous. Um, there was, you know, this um, 18, 19-year-old girl to propose to a late middle-aged man was totally out of the question and there's no evidence whatsoever. But on the other hand, we have another image of Queen Victoria, which the programme Victoria was really designed to counter. And that is the picture here of Queen Victoria as, you know, the widow of Windsor. Queen Victoria uh, constantly swathed in black with a white widow's cap, black jet, black satin, black for the last 40 years of her life, um, Queen Victoria looking particularly disapproving. And, of course, you know, the famous uh, remark she's supposed to always have made, we are not amused. That is a very much we are not amused photograph. In fact, Queen no. Victoria loathes being photographed. Um, and the trouble with early photography, as we all know, was that you had to stay very still. Uh, for many minutes while the photograph was being taken so she always put on a kind of photograph face which made her look um, really rather disagreeable in fact Queen Victoria you'll be glad to hear had an enchanting smile and a irresistible laugh even though she did have very large teeth so this, this picture also is interesting because um, when, when, if you look at the original uh, sort of plates, glass plates of photographs of Queen Victoria at this sort of rather late stage in her life, um, you'll find that, in fact, uh, they have been sort of, um, you know, photoshopped to make her look less large. So, in fact, here she doesn't look terribly slender. So you could imagine that in um, late middle age, Queen Victoria really was, as the um, Tsar Nicholas II said, a round ball on two sticks. <laughs> I first came across Queen Victoria or Queen Victoria's letters in manuscript uh, when I was um, writing a biography of her eldest son, Edward VII, Bertie, and the relations between mother and son were bad to say the least. And when I was reading the um, really th- the thousands of letters. Uh, exchange between them at Windsor in the archives, what you get from Queen Victoria's letters really shocked me. I mean, Queen Victoria's writing is famously difficult to read, Uh, particularly as she gets older. It is really, really hard. Even the archivists can't read it. But once you do decipher it, the things that she said about and to her eldest son were quite astounding you know, that he was weak, that he was ugly, that he was um, easily influenced, that he should never, never, never become king. All this sort of really angry stuff that poured from her pen. And I felt that at that point, that Queen Victoria was really, you know, particularly by the standards that mothers in the 21st century, suppose we might feel that about our sons, but we shouldn't ever say it or write it. (laughs) Uh, She seemed to have no sort of boundaries, no limits, uh, no sense of where she should stop. And there is a a rather good good saying that, you know, the Hanoverians, and of course Queen Victoria was a Hanoverian, member of the Hanoverian (laughs) dynasty, that the Hanoverians are like ducks. They trample on their young. And Queen Victoria certainly was like a sort of mega duck. She really did (laughs) sit on her young (laughs) and um, torment them. So that is a side of Queen Victoria that is rather sort of hard to accept. And, and I must say that I didn't give her, I don't think, a very friendly write-up in the book that I wrote about Edward Seventh. But then I was asked to write this very short book about Queen Victoria for Penguin Monarchs, which, you know, you can find that there. And um, I, I had to look at things from Victoria's point of view, obviously. And I found myself thinking that Queen Victoria in many ways was a much more sympathetic character um, than I had thought when I was writing about her as a mother from the point of view of her son. And I think one of the things that that really struck me reading her letters and diaries from her point of view was the terrific tension that she felt really right up until the end of her life between her role as a woman remember, we're talking here about Victorian society where women were, you know, they didn't have, they didn't have legal rights. Uh, they were not um, persons in the, in the law until really late on in the, in the middle of the century. They were absolutely inferior to their husbands. Victoria was brought up with that culture, she was brought up to believe that as a woman, her destiny was to kind of subordinate herself to a man in marriage. That on the one hand. Uh, and then on the other hand, this in conflict with Victoria's idea and sense of her destiny as queen. And even as a very young girl, you get this extraordinary steeliness of character. As, as a very young girl, she was brought up at Kensington Palace by her mother, the Duchess of Kent, don't want to talk about this part of my life too much, Uh, but um, I think one does need to say a little bit just to understand Queen Victoria, that at Kensington Palace, the Duchess of Kent and um, her probable lover, certainly accomplice, her controller, as he was called, Sir John Conroy, bullied Queen Victoria, the young, or Princess Victoria she then was, and um, in a way abused her in a way that today would be completely unacceptable. And what they wanted was for Queen Victoria to accept that Conroy should become her private secretary when she became queen, and that the Duchess of Kent should, if possible, have a regency. And the young Victoria, you know, she's only, you know, in, in her early teens, resists this with extraordinary strength of mind. So, you know, there is this sort of tension, I think, throughout Victoria's life between, on the one hand, her steely sense of, you know, I am going to be queen, her mission as a royal person, her sense that she, she, she was going to reign, which she had really right from the, the year 1830, really, when she was, became almost second in line, 1834. And um, on the one hand that, and on the other hand, her sense that, you know, as, as a woman within this culture, there were certain ways in which she ought to behave. So um, perhaps it's not surprising that Victoria constantly sort of is contradicting herself. And on the one hand, she can be a complete monster. And on the other hand, she can be astonishingly um, modern, sympathetic, human and likable. But then we have to add to that something else, which is that um, Victoria herself is very much aware of the importance of projecting an image. So right from the beginning of her reign in 1837, Victoria tries to put across a view of what her monarchy stands for and um, what she is all about. If we look at um, this picture, this is a painting by an American artist called Thomas Sully. And here we have Victoria, just as you see, ascending the throne just before her coronation, uh, wearing her crown, uh, wearing her robes. And the whole idea of this picture is that um, this is the beginning of a kind of new dawn, you know, that um, Victoria is going to sweep away her wicked uncles, the fat, lazy, wicked Hanoverians, particularly um, George IV, but also William IV, and all the sort of uncles who lived these scandalous lives with their mistresses. And Victoria is going to stand for a new youthful age. She is the embodiment of innocence and all of those sort of things. That was the image But in fact, um, the reality during these early years of her reign was very different. And if if you read Catherine Hughes, my friend Catherine Hughes's excellent book on Victorians Undone, you will find a chapter which she didn't talk about this morning, but which gives um, an excellent account of Victoria's behaviour as a young queen ruling her court with Lord Melbourne, to one of her lady-in-waiting of her mother, who's called Lady Flora Hastings, the Lady Flora Hastings scandal. I don't want to spoil the story for you now. I'm not going to go into any detail about it. But the point is that, that what was going on here was that Victoria didn't like Lady Flora Hastings, and she bred scandal about Lady Flora Hastings. She accused her of being pregnant. Of course, Lady Flora wasn't married. Uh, She accused her of having an affair with the hated John Conroy. She basically tortured this poor woman who then died. And, of course, when she died, it transpired that she didn't. Have, she wasn't pregnant. She actually had some terrible kind of um, stomach cancer. So, um, on the one hand, you know, this naive, innocent, youthful young woman of 19 climbing the throne. On the other hand, the terrible treatment that was handed out to Lady Flora Hastings, who was really sort of persecuted um, and died a terrible death, made much worse by Victoria's behaviour... <laughs> Now, if we kind of leap forward to another picture, which is proposing a particular view of Victoria's monarchy. Here we have 1846, and this picture is called The Royal Family in 1846. It's by Winterhalter, who was Victoria's favourite artist, an Austrian. And um, you can see that um, it's an extraordinary diagram, really, of what the new Victorian monarchy thinks it's all about. By now, Victoria has married... Uh, she married the love of her life, her first cousin, Prince Albert, in 1840. And as you can see, they've already produced um, one, two, three, four, five children uh, in very quick succession. This is only after six years of marriage. Here we have, on the, on the one hand, um, Queen Victoria wearing her sort of, um, you know, being like a queen, wearing her crown, wearing a garter ribbon, and next to her, Prince Albert, Albert also is wearing a garter ribbon. And when this picture was, was shown, people were very critical of it because they said it made Albert look much more important than Victoria. He's the dominant figure. And Albert is eyeing his son, eldest son Bertie, on Victoria's, with a red dress on Victoria's right. And um, it, it, this is, the idea is that Albert is going to train up Bertie uh, to become an ideal ruler and to carry on Queen Victoria's line. And so here we have this royal couple doing lots of ruling. And then um, also we have in this picture all their children, with a baby even. And, um, you know, the picture is a complete sort of fantasy because actually they didn't dress up their children. Like this as though they were having a children's party and sit there in their court dress, you know, frolicking with their family. It's, it, it, it's, it's not how it was at all. But it was designed to make a point, putting the children in there. And the point was that this is... A perfect family. This is the ideal family. This is, this is the equivalent, rather, of those slightly ill-judged television programmes that the present Queen, do you remember the, po- the, the programme of, of, of them having a barbecue at Balmoral in the 1960s, which caused such a sort of rumpus because it was so unreal? Well, this also is an even more unreal picture of family life. But the idea was that you had a family on the throne, that it was a family that behaved like other bourgeois families, and there's just this slight little problem, which is, you know, where does the power lie in this family? Because, of course, within most Victorian families, it would be the man who would have the power. But um, in this family, we've got the slight sort of problem that the person who's way more powerful, way richer, and of vastly higher rank is um, the wife. And so there's this sort of problem, I mentioned before, of the conflictedness of Queen Victoria. And you might like to note, before we move on, you might like to look um, at Albert's um, facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> this is 1846, before the development of the beard as, as vastly fashionable. But you can see um, that he has a, a lot of mutton chop below his ears. So, you know, was this picture, is this, is this reality or is this spin...? That's the question. And I think what for Victoria, what she considered was that the reality of her relationship with Albert was really more like this. This picture was not publicly displayed. It was actually called a secret picture, the secret picture, which or the bedroom picture. Uh, And Victoria commissioned it herself and gave it to um, Albert as a present for his 24th birthday. Now i don 't know what you think this picture might tell us about um, Victoria 's view of her relationship with Albert, but it seems to me this is clearly I mean Victoria 's got her hair done, she is throwing her head back. Um, this picture is meant to convey the passionate nature of the relationship. Um, and the passionate love that Victoria has for her young husband and first cousin, Prince Albert. So this was the sort of private version of the marriage from Victoria's point of view rather than the public version that we've just seen. But I wonder, was that really the reality of the relationship between Victoria and Albert? After Albert's death, Victoria spent a great deal of time sort of developing the myth, the idea that um, she and Albert were the most adoring and devoted couple ever, you know, one of the great sort of romantic lovers uh, of all time. But was this really the truth? Well, you might think perhaps from that picture that it was. And it's certainly true that, um, uh, that, that Queen Victoria was, was very keen indeed um, on um, Prince Albert and that she particularly enjoyed her time in bed with him. She was remarkably sort of difficult to put off. Albert always wore in bed sort of white cotton stockings. He wore sort of white cotton baby grow over his feet
0: (laughs) because
3: he felt the cold terribly. But she didn't sort of object to that. And always also... (coughs) Um, outside her bedroom, sometimes inside it or in the dressing room next door, there would be a um, lady-in-waiting sleeping, you know, on a long kind of sofa thing, just to make sure that all the Queen's needs were met in the middle of the night. But in spite of the sort of public nature of Queen Victoria and Albert's bedroom, it nevertheless was, a, obviously, we've seen six children in, in almost as many years, it was a very sort of unproductive... <laughs> Uh, part of her life. So, I mean, there's no doubt at all um, that, you know, Victoria was totally, sexually infatuated with Albert. But the question is, really, and the question that any biographer looking at Victoria has to answer, um, you know, was, did Albert feel the same? And I think that um, if you look at things from Albert's point of view, um, essentially, uh, Prince Albert had been um, trained uh, since his early teens Uh, for the job of marrying Queen Victoria. Uh, Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, they shared an uncle, Uncle Leopold, who had been married to um, Princess Charlotte, who died, and then became King of Belgium. And Leopold, who had, you know, thought that he himself was going to rule England, but was cheated of this by the death of his wife, Princess Charlotte, who had been the heir to the throne, feels that if he's not going to rule, well, at least he's going to make damn sure that his family, the Saxe-Coburgs, are going to um, take over the throne of England. It is an extraordinary dynastic coup d'etat that is going on in a very sort of sneaky way. Albert, the um, nephew of, of Leopold, first cousin of Victoria, was A, um, uh, you know, that he came, Coburg. I don't know, has anybody been to Coburg? Coburg is a town about the size of Salisbury. The territory of the Duke of Coburg, Albert's father, was about the size of the Isle of Wight. Bristol is way bigger than Coburg and way more um, impressive. It was tiny, small, provincial German state. Albert was not even the first son. He was the second son uh, to this duchy and also the family to which he belonged, the saxe coburg goaters, They they were not... um, If you talk about Queen Victoria's wicked uncles, the Coburgs were infinitely worse. Um, They were all of them riddled with syphilis. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER and particularly Albert's father, Duke Ernest, who had a, a very bad reputation. Albert's mother was banished from court, allegedly because of she was um, unfaithful and had an adulterous relationship, slight double standards. And also Albert's brother, another Ernest, was equally riddled with syphilis. So they were not, I mean, they had nothing going for them except ambition. And Albert, unlike the rest of his family, presumably because of his mother, is extremely intelligent—a brilliant sort of scholastic brain. He would have made a wonderful sort of professor. He had great, a great sort of academic ability. So he works very hard. As a little boy, he does very well in his lessons. And then he is promoted by his uncle, Leopold, trained to become a ruler and marry Victoria and take over control of the English throne. That was the sort of Saxe-Coburg project. So for Albert, marriage to Victoria is not really about all these romantic things like sex and love. Marriage to Victoria is about a job. And fortunately, he doesn't really approve of Victoria as a young woman. He thought she was far too flighty, went to far too many parties, very frivolous. Um, and he really wanted to break off the relationship, if it could. But unfortunately, he comes to England and Victoria falls madly in love with him on first sight, proposes to him, she proposes to him, note, um, within five days of meeting him. She doesn't, by the way, even, you know, tell her mother. She just does it. She d- lets the Prime Minister know, by the way, I'm going to do this. But, you know, uh, <laughs> um, complete sort of self-will stealiness. And Albert accepts and then begins, once he's married to Victoria, um, Albert begins to take over power. And the easiest way to do this is basically by making Victoria repeatedly pregnant. Um, Because, um, you know, clearly she's not going to be able to do all the reigning if she's um, constantly feeling sick or lying in after um, giving birth to her babies. And so poor Victoria, during this period of her life, is incredibly conflicted, to use an awful word again, because, you know, she adores Albert, but she knows she's queen and she doesn't really want to share power with him, but she knows she can't do it. And it's perhaps for that reason um, that she's so bitterly resentful of her babies and her children. And she says wonderful things about children and babies. Like, you know, I can't bear babies. She said they look like little frogs. Uh, <laughs> and all that awful shadow side of marriage, she calls it. She just makes no attempt to be sentimental and say how lovely it is to give birth to another life or anything like that. She's always completely blunt about her feelings. But I can't help feeling that one reason why she's so sort of down on babies and childbirth is because she knew that it was locking her into a prison she couldn't do what she felt was her mission, what she really wanted to do, which was to be queen. And so um, Albert, for his part throughout this period, is using, and that really is interesting, I think, what, something that's emerged recently from looking um, uh, carefully at the evidence, that Albert actually is... Um, I don't know, do any of you watch The Archers? I'm sure you don't you listen to The Archers, do you? Should you listen to The Archers? I'm um, sure, sure you're always reading history books. But were you to be... <laughs> Should you have listened to The Archers, you may know somebody called Rob Titchener. <laughs> and for those of you who don't, um, Rob Titchener was a kind of controlling husband who, you know, nowadays we, have a, we actually have a law, don't we, to put Rob Titchener inside. But um, in the days of Prince Albert, this was not the case. And of course, the, uh, the controlling husband was sort of licensed, really, in the Victorian period by the Victorian idea of marriage and the roles of men and women. And Albert um, does actually control Victoria as his wife in an extraordinary way. Victoria had a terrible temper. Bad temper was a thing you were allowed to have as a Hanoverian. It was one of their traits, you know, it was like being good at music or something. <laughs> but the Hanoverians, not particularly good at music, but very good at shouting. But also remember that Queen Victoria's grandfather, George Third, had been um, about whom there was an excellent um, BBC programme the other day, I don't know if you saw it, but George III um, had been mad in the last um, 20 years of his life. And the doctors thought, um, wrongly probably, but they thought that the madness was hereditary and that one of the symptoms of this madness was shouting, losing your temper. Albert believes that Queen Victoria has most likely inherited the royal madness... And his doctors are all telling him that this is the problem. And he was told by the doctors that in order to um, keep her calm, he must never, if she loses her temper, what she must do is just walk out of the room. And so Vic, you get these wonderful pictures of Victoria and Albert um, having these blazing rows. Albert saying absolutely nothing. Victoria chasing Albert round the palace as he walks out of the room, slamming the doors <laughs> this sort of tiny figure of four foot eleven, absolutely furious. And what she wants just is some kind of exchange, you know, some kind of comeback. She doesn't get it. But what happened instead was that Albert made her keep a little book in which she wrote down each day when she lost her temper. And then he would see her every month and they would go through her um, moral behaviour and see whether she'd improved or not. Well, I mean, (laughs) this was this was not just Mrs. Rob Titchener, whatever her name is. This was this was the Queen of England (laughs) uh, who is being kind of given, um, uh, you know, no, I don't know what you'd call it, really. Well, control. She's been controlled by her husband and made to feel completely inadequate. And made also to feel uh, by Albert, and I'm quoting her here, that we women are not fitted to reign. You know, tell that to the Queen. She was made to feel that it was totally inappropriate for her to, to, to reign within a man's world. So all the work of the monarchy for the 20 years that they're married, 20 or so years, is done by Albert. Albert. <coughs> And Albert would work really long hours. um, As I told you, he was very clever and very industrious and also had a great passion and need for order and control. And um, one of the things that he did was just to copy out all the letters um, that were written by Victoria because he thought these were so secret and important that none of his secretaries could touch them. So, I mean... He spends hours and hours and hours, you know, gets up early in the morning, works late into the night, like a clerk, you know, like Bob Cratchit in Christmas Carol, uh, copying out laboriously in his very bold, clear hand these letters written by the Queen. And he compiled this enormous and actually very modern filing system, cross-reference filing system of the Queen's correspondence, um, all by himself. But this means, well, what we should have said, this meant that what he was trying to do was to change the role of the monarchy and to make the monarchy a bit like the cabinet office, as the sort of office of government, which actually controlled whether, politici- whether you know, politicians, ministers did their jobs. So he would summon people, people, ministers and the prime minister would be summoned to the palace and cross-questioned about whether they'd, you know, built the number of ships they agreed to do, whatever it might be. And when they went there, Queen Victoria would ask these questions and Albert would prompt her in German. So, you know, he would tell her what to do and then she'd say it in English to the minister. So (laughs) she was totally under his control. But unfortunately for Albert, this was very tiring. And you can see here, here is a photograph taken of Albert and Victoria in um, 1861, a few months before he died. Albert here is only 42 and he already is looking very tired, balding, and um, rather paunchy. Uh, What actually was wrong with Albert is still debatable. We don't know. Albert died, as I'm sure you know, of allegedly typhoid fever in 1861, a few months after this photograph was taken. There was probably some underlying illness. It may have been stomach cancer. It may have been Crohn's disease. Queen Victoria forbade an autopsy on Albert after he died, so we don't actually know, and perhaps we never will know precisely, um, what was wrong with him. But I think it's thought to be unlikely that he died of typhoid. He died of some underlying illness plus pneumonia. Now, given what I just said, given Victoria's total emotional and, and political dependence on Albert, given the fact that Albert was really doing the job, Albert's death came as a devastating blow. And so, uh, you know, Victoria, 1861, she dies in 1901. She's got 40 more years to live. And yet she's convinced, really, from 1861 onwards that she is really about to die. And she's endlessly writing letters saying, you know, I'm just longing to join Albert as quickly as I can. She commissioned her own sort of effigy for her grave at Frogmore, which is a huge mausoleum which she erected in Albert's memory. And she, uh, there's there's a sort of, um, you know, there's a huge effigy of Albert lying there. And she commissioned her own effigy in sort of 1867. And she didn't actually jump in under there for about 35 years. But she does become very morbid and very death obsessed. And she goes into um, a state of. Of retreat and seclusion. And I think this is really the most, this last 40 years of Victoria's reign is the period that we know much less about because she's almost invisible. She's very rarely seen, she very rarely appears. Yet I think it's in a way the most fascinating and the most extraordinary. Imagine if the present Queen, I mean it's completely unimaginable that the present Queen should um, appear in public, uh, you know, let's say five days a year only, that she should be completely invisible. I mean, the Queen, is, is today, our Queen today, is one of the most photographed, most known, most famous, most visible characters, people in, in world history. In some ways, actually, she's the complete mirror image of Queen Victoria, um, because we know what the Queen looks like, uh, but we don't actually know what she is like, because she's never given an interview, and um, we've heard the odd speech, but she never sort of writes to us or sort of confides to us. But Queen Victoria is the opposite. She won't appear, uh, but she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And she would write when the the public was being particularly um, unruly. She would write a letter to the Times, and she would say, you know, the Queen is feeling really uh, has such important work to do and is so unhappy that would her people please be quiet and stop complaining. I mean, (laughs) uh, and you can't imagine our present Queen doing that. But the point about Queen Victoria and why she's such a wonderful um, character to write about is that she wrote so much herself. She kept this enormous journal. Uh, And you can see um, most of it online, but most of it's been rewritten by her daughter, Princess Beatrice, who cut it hugely and then threw away the originals. And the bit that, or burnt them, and the bit that she cut. Uh, was always the bits that Beatrice thought were unacceptable, which were always the bits about gossip and health and the really interesting bits. Um, so it doesn't really give a true reflection of Queen Victoria. But um, she, wrote a ju- she wrote, you know, one or two thousand words a night on her journal and she would sit for most of the daytime writing. She wrote... Thousands of words each day. She wrote millions of words. Um, And she did it all herself. I mean, she did have secretaries for the political stuff, but she kept, she was at the centre of this massive correspondence with all her enormous family, um, which multiplied as the generations went on and she became grandmother of Europe. So it would be wrong to say that during her widowhood, Queen Victoria was being lazy, not doing anything. Uh, but she was most certainly refusing to appear in public. For ten years, from 1861 until um, at the, at 1871, she was barely seen at all. She hardly went to London. Buckingham Palace was shut up. There was, you know, dust sheets put all over the furniture. When um, people went there, there was sort of dust everywhere. It was filthy dirty. Uh, Victoria would come up to London for the day from Windsor, where there's a convenient train, and go back. She spent a great deal of time um, on the Isle of Wight, wonderfully inaccessible if you want to go and see her and you're the Prime Minister. In those days, getting to the Isle of Wight was not easy. And even more time in Scotland, at Balmoral, which was even worse to get to, uh, it was a sort of 16-hour train journey. And, you know, once they were there, most politicians um, uh, who had to stay with the Queen, you know, there's always a minister in attendance, felt extremely um, uncomfortable because it was so cold. Uh, Queen Victoria insisted always on having the temperatures on every... Sorry, this isn't relevant. On having, in every room of her house on the mantelpiece, um, there would be a thermometer to see what the temperature was. And it must always be below 60. Every um, window was open in all her sitting rooms. She had. She always felt terribly hot, much hotter than most people. So people staying at Balmoral were frozen. So Victoria then is living this extraordinary life at, at the extremities of her kingdom, in the Isle of Wight on the one hand, in Balmoral at the other, the rest of the time at Windsor, never in London, never, she is invisible. And the question is, what was she doing? She, she tried in various ways to sort of project an image of great grief. This is a very happy photograph. This is the wedding photograph of Victoria's eldest son Bertie, uh, who is marrying his uh, Princess Alexandra of Denmark, and this is the photograph that they had with you know Mum, <laughs> 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 who, as you can see, was very delighted about the marriage. <laughs> And, of course, this is dad, the bust. And, and Victoria is basically communing with the dead Albert. And the, the idea that this photograph is getting across is that this is a woman absolutely paralysed with grief uh, for her husband. You have to remember, though, what I said earlier, that, that we, we know that there were these furious rows between Albert and Victoria running around the palace and slamming doors while Albert was alive. So it may be that there is an element of remorse and guilt in Victoria's rather excessive mourning. Or it may be also that she was suffering from some kind of nervous breakdown. Um, And I think there's probably some sort of evidence for this. But anyway, she hides from her people. Another thing she does to try and convince people that she's working very hard is to um, commission this painting. This is rather a wonderful painting by Lancia. And it's a painting, as you can see, of the the Queen wearing black, black, uh, on a black, black horse with black dogs and a black... Groom, holding her horse, um, with a black kilt even. And um, she wanted to present this picture to the public. It was exhibited at the Royal Academy. She's at Osborne. That's Osborne on the Isle of Wight behind her. And the the point of the picture was to show that the Queen, um, in spite of her being completely um, devastated by grief, that the Queen um, is still working really hard for her subjects. You can see that there is a red box, a ministerial red box, government red box um, on the floor. You can see that the point is even when she goes out riding, she's working. You know, it's like somebody who's sort of texting all the time. Here is the Queen, right, reading her official correspondence um, and um, all these sort of emblems of rule, gloves and uh, also dogs, emblems of her authority and these bits of paper on the floor. Now, um, OK, the point was this picture misfired completely. When it was exhibited, the public was aghast. and What they were horrified by was the person holding the horse. Because this was, in fact, Queen Victoria's uh, ghillie, who'd been sent down from Scotland, John Brown. And you can see from the picture that the painter, Lancia, has given John Brown, which was true, um, a beautiful pair of legs. And also, he's rather a fine figure of a man. And so, um, what the picture seemed to suggest was not that Victoria was working frightfully hard despite her misery, but that she had um, an inappropriately intimate relationship with her manservant, the Scotsman John Brown. And so this, this, this painting and other similar things uh, lead to a whole sort of, sort of story and scandal and gossip, accusing Queen Victoria of being, you know, she's known as Mrs Brown, there were stories that were completely untrue, that she had a child by Brown, that she was married secretly to Brown, all of this sort of thing. So that Queen Victoria's attempt to spin an image doesn't always work. Quite often um, it backfires. And I think, I just want to say quickly, because I think I'm going to stop in a minute or two, I just want to say that Queen Victoria, while she, John Brown, I think, had a very bad effect on Queen Victoria. She needed companionship. uh, Because she was a queen and so isolated, she couldn't have friends like ordinary people did. She liked men. And John Brown, whatever else he did, he he had access to her. He came to her room frequently. Um, he, He called her woman which she loved and um, so she felt kind of safe with him a kind of companionship but he has a terrible effect on her relations with her children. He bullies her children and also all her household hated him because he was a, not a very pleasant man and a drunkard. Once John Brown is dead, things improve. And in fact, what I found, and I want to end on a very cheerful note, is that um, once Queen Victoria is into her 60s, she suddenly does seem to be able to reconcile the two conflicting pressures of being a woman and being a queen. She becomes, as you can see from this Jubilee painting of 1887, she becomes grandmother. Mother of Europe. She becomes the center of a huge extended family which is also a massively powerful dynasty. And when this happens, Queen Victoria becomes much more fulfilled. She laughs, she makes jokes, People like her, and she's much nicer to her grandchildren than she was to any of her children. She gets on very well with her prime ministers, Disraeli and Salisbury, rather less well with Mr Gladstone, who she can't bear. Um, But all the same, I do think that by the time, with a little bit of sort of bad behaviour, this is her... Indian servant, the Munchi, who's a sort of Indian version of John Brown, to whom she is too close, some would argue. But apart from that, on the whole, Queen Victoria, as a woman in her 60s and 70s, is somebody for whom I have nothing but admiration. Thank you very much.
4: That was Jane Ridley. Her book, entitled Victoria, Queen, Matriarch, Empress, was published in 2015 by Penguin. And as it happens, you can read a piece by Jane on Victoria and Albert's marriage in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also inside this month's edition, we have articles on Viking battles, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, medieval Europe's unholiest monk, and a whole lot more. Look out for our September issue in all good News Agents
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/Slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com/Slash History Extra.
4: Meanwhile, our events programme continues this autumn with our History Weekends. They take place from the 6th to 8th of October in Winchester and the 24th to 26th of November in York. Speakers include the likes of Dan Jones, Michael Wood, Yanina Ramirez, Alison Weir and Charles Spencer. You can find out more details and book tickets at historyweekend.com. And that is about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday for more from the world of history.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher.